Isn't Advent a fun time? Hope. Hope. Such a fun topic to talk about. I was reading, uh, reading devotions off and on all week on hope, and um, uh, I was surprised that most of them were felt to me like designed to make you feel good, and that's not my goal today, sorry. No, it actually is. It's to give you a picture of true hope. What is Christian hope? What is it? What do we really hope in? We talked last week about Advent, this whole period of time, and we said we're going to be lighting candles, and we're going to be doing all kinds of things that are fun for us, that we enjoy. And if we're not careful, we, we find our comfort in the ritual or the practice or the liturgy without really ever digging down a little bit and asking, what is it we're trying to accomplish here? We talked about what does it mean to develop uh, an eagerness, a genuine, true eagerness for the return of the Lord? Uh, we weren't there the first time waiting for him to come. We get to have the pleasure of looking back and celebrating it, but looking forward to the second coming. And so what is it about hope? What makes hope Christian? What makes us different than the world? And that's what I want to talk to you about today. What is actual Christian hope really all about? Uh, back <clears throat> a few years now, when I taught my last undergraduate class at Colorado Christian University, I asked the question, uh, they have to... They have to keep a, an online journal where they interact with the, the class sessions. And so I follow along and read those journals every week. And in one of the journals, what came up was a, uh, something that kind of alerted me to a question I needed to ask. So there's 40 students in the class. And I asked them, how many of you are looking forward to heaven? What do you think the answer was? Zero. Zero. And it dawned on me at that point in time that we have not done a good enough job to really explain what this is all about. Since that time, that started me on a journey. That was in 2008. started me on a journey to begin to research and study and to talk to people. And I've discovered that they weren't alone in that. In fact, if I were to ask most of you, you would probably find more comfort and more questions about the future, more comfort in today. I like four-wheeling. Do I have to give that up? I like mountain climbing. I like skiing. I like my marriage. What about my friends that aren't saved? What about my children? And so somewhere over the years, I, I realized that we've not done a very good job of communicating what genuine Christian hope really is and how does it differ from the world. I asked the students that day, explored it with them, <clears throat> what, they, uh, what they foresaw, how they understood heaven, what does that mean to them. And, um, and they've all been raised with the, all of the children's books and the, the curriculum of you know, children's programs, things like that, where... You know, at one level, we're sitting in clouds uh, playing harps, something like that. At another level, we're on our knees bowing before Jesus for eternity. Another one, another level, God forbid, we're singing hymns for the rest of eternity. <laughs> right? In other words, heaven for our young people was an eternal church service. Mark, what would you say the first service? Yeah, that sounds horrible, and I'm a pastor. 
It's an eternal church service. So I told my students, shoot me now and put me out of my misery. No, right, don't, because then I'm stuck in that for eternity. And so it really raised the question, what is it we're actually looking forward to? What is hope? Hope for what? And how does that differ from the world? If heaven is an eternal church service, no wonder we're more comfortable here and not there. By the way, we're not alone in this. Every religion understands a couple of things. Number one is we're going to die. That's pretty common among the world. Everywhere I go, everybody believes that we're going to die. And with the exception of a small group of people, everybody believes there's something later after that. We don't know what that is, and it's pretty confusing. I've I've been reading a book by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope, where he talks about rethinking the resurrection, the church, and what does this mean? And he brings this up. Beliefs about death and what lies beyond comes in all shapes and sorts and sizes. Even a quick glance at the classic views of the major religious tradition gives the lie to the old idea that all religions are basically the same. They're not. I cannot overstate, nor can I say it enough, how unique Christianity is. I cannot say it enough. I've been a Christian 40 years this month, and I've devoted my life to understanding this so that I can be a gift to you. There's absolutely no way I can overstate how unique Christianity is when you compare all the religions of the world. There's a world of difference between the Muslim who believes that a Palestinian boy killed by Israeli soldiers goes straight to heaven and the Hindu for whom the rigorous outworking of karma means that one must return in a different body to pursue the next stage of one's destiny. We call it reincarnation. 30 million times. There's a world of difference between the Orthodox Jew who believes that all the righteous will be raised to a new individual bodily life in the resurrection and the Buddhist who hopes after death to disappear like a drop in the ocean, losing one's identity in the great nameless and formless beyond. Everybody's trying to figure it out. Because we know we're going to die. We all know that. We take it for granted. And uh, the older we get, the more that important that becomes to us. And yet, all of us have something built into us that longs for something in the future. And all these kids talking, which we love, gives us just a glimpse. It presents, if you will, evidence of of we're wired this way. I've never met anybody that said, you're looking at nirvana. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) I'm it. I've arrived. I don't need any more joy. I've never met anybody that said that. There's a piece of us, something built in that keeps us looking forward But if we don't understand well what that something is, we tend to find our roots and our anchors here, not here. Don't we? It's hard to answer the question, what is that? And we've confused it with the language of heaven, to be honest with you. The Bible doesn't actually talk, not the way we've defined it for many of you. The Bible doesn't actually talk about dying and going to heaven. Heaven is always presented as coming to us. 
So I want to take a few moments and talk about what does that actually look like? What does that mean? Last week when we talked about Advent, we talked again about, remember, enjoy these traditions, but don't stop just with the comfort that they bring. Actually try to make sense of what happens. Because we're talking about a spiritual world that is difficult for us to understand. It goes beyond our five senses, our three dimensions. It goes beyond that. And we're trying to grasp it and trying to make sense of it in our world today. And at the very best, we see through a world darkly, Paul says. We see through a world darkly. If we do our traditions properly, like Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, just for a brief glimpse, that darkness, that dark glass becomes clear and spiritual reality enters into our world and we can taste it. We can see it. So what makes us different than the world? Let me start with a real simple idea. We hope for what we already possess. The world hopes for what they don't know yet. We've already tasted, as Paul calls, I'm going to read this in just a few minutes, the first fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know the list. We've already tasted it, and we want more of it. But the way we've constructed a view of the future, doesn't, it doesn't make it easy for us to get there. And hence, 40 students none of which looked forward to dying and going to heaven. I'm more comfortable here. And so what actually is it? Where are we going? Where are we going? I'm going to read a passage. The very first sermon given after the death of Christ is in Acts 2 with Peter. You see, the, the cross, the cross was not something they celebrated. The cross was about failure. The cross, specifically the crucifixion of a human being in extreme torment, uh, was the Roman way of saying, we own you. And we're going to make your death so excruciatingly painful that everybody who watches will never dare to go up on a cross. Jesus was familiar with it. Paul was familiar with it. They would have seen it. Anytime there was a rebellious uprising, they they would put everybody on the cross and air them out. There was roads that would go 100 miles with crosses, people dying. And then they would leave the cross up there. They would leave the person up there for the birds to pick at, just to remind you that we own you. We are in charge. You are not. So when Jesus died... No wonder they scattered. No wonder they ran behind closed doors and hid because they were trying to run for their lives. That's what they were trying to do because they lost. They knew they had lost. They bet on the wrong horse. They got behind the wrong person. No one ever conceived that the Messiah would die on the cross. We're going to talk more about that starting February 15th because that's the beginning of Lent this year. So you can't talk about Advent without seeing Lent in the future. They go together. So what happened? If they ran and hid, what changed their minds? Acts chapter 2. 
Peter's first sermon. The Holy Spirit has come. Shocked the whole community of Jerusalem. The noise like a violent wind. The the tongues of flame. The speaking in tongues. The filling with the Holy Spirit. All of that. Everybody came together. And this is one of the great Pentecosts. This is Pentecost, one of the great festivals. And so the town was full. Jerusalem was full of men and women from all over the world who had come together. And they heard this. They all got together. And what do you suppose they thought? These guys are drunk. They're drunk. There's a problem. So Peter stands up, verse 14, with the 11. He raises his voice and he addresses the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. An entirely new world. This is an entirely new world. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the great, the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Now he could have stopped. He answered their question. Joel predicted this. He answered their question. And they could have gone on their way and said, oh, great. But he doesn't. He's got a platform. And just like Mark and me, give us a mic and we're happy. And he takes them on. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Okay? You can hear them saying, we, we saw those miracles. We heard about them. Where are you going with this? This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Okay? So God made this happen. He sent this man. Where are you going with this? And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What happens to the people who try to pull off a coup and it's a failed coup? What happens? You try to assassinate an emperor, a dictator, a king, a ruler, and you don't succeed. What happens? Right? That statement would be enough to terrify everybody. Sure enough, at the, end of the, at the end of the section, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were terrified. They tried to kill the Messiah, and they failed. And like any good king, he's going to exact his, his vengeance. But then listen where Peter goes. And now all of a sudden, we're moving into the area of hope. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. We're talking about the resurrection. The resurrection. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. There it is. 
My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, to Hades. This is the beginning of understanding Christian hope. We will die, but we will not stay dead. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that you're made in the image of God and you get to be you for all of eternity. And you know what? I like you. I don't want you to go through reincarnation and that whole process. Not interested in that. I don't want you to become something different than you are now. You have dignity because you're a human made in the image of God. I get to be me for eternity. You get to be you for eternity. And when we'll spend eternity together, we will know each other. You're not going to become somebody different or something that's different. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Peter goes on and uses this to show that he's talking about Jesus. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your presence. You will fill me specifically with joy. Joy. You will fill me with joy in your presence. You've tasted, every one of you here in this room has tasted some level of joy. Sometimes it's fleeting. Sometimes it's more. But we long for more of it, don't we? Don't we? We long for more of that peace. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of all the rhetoric, the killings, the shootings, the wars, the sexual harassment now. I'm tired of all of it. I long for peace. I long for joy. I've tasted it, so I know what's coming. That's the source of hope, is we long for, we look forward to what we already possess. And that's what those kids are saying up there. They've already had Christmas presents, so they know what more is like, don't they? They've already had parents who have to deal with chaos. (laughs) Was that great or what? Oh, my gosh. That was perfect. They've already been there. You might think about how you communicate that to your kids, <laughs> what they're picking up. <laughs> we, we are looking forward to what we already possess. That's the basis for our hope. It's called resurrection. When we, when we communicate to people that heaven is some ethereal place up there, we're missing the primary purpose of why God created me the way he did. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. 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 God created us for this. I heard Mark say something this week. Uh, This happens regularly where he kind of shifts my theology or gives me a new way to look at it or something. Happens with all the staff, by the way. Um, Without us, this creation means nothing. It means nothing. Because as good Christian theologians, what do we believe? We are the high point in the creation story. Everything is leading up to the creation of humans who are made in the image of God. And so this is for our benefit. By the way, I've used that in uh, evangelism. When I'm talking to people about Christ, I've used that. I talked to a guy not too long ago, just a short while back, and he said, well, tell me about your God. You know, I said, well, 
He made all that out there. And he turned around, some of you have heard this, and he stared out the window for two minutes. And he just looked at it, and he turned around and he said, why? And I said, two reasons. One is so you would enjoy it. Are you enjoying it? And he said, absolutely, I love it. And I said, you're already doing something God wants you to do. You're enjoying creation. How many of you enjoy this? You're already fulfilling part of God's plan. But now there's a second reason, because he reveals his glory through the creation so that you get a sense that there is a true, living, wonderful, loving God who is bigger than you. In other words, it's not about you. You fit into something far bigger. Without us, creation means nothing. So now listen to Paul's language. You see, when you start to look at our eternal home as the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, you begin to think differently, differently about our world. This is Paul. Paul's in Romans 8. He's just finished the first seven chapters talking about sin, the effects of sin, and the coming of Christ, and all of that kind of stuff. When he gets to chapter 8, he's talking about, okay, so what? What does life in the Spirit look like for us? What does it really mean? Listen to these words, Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Ooh, think about that. Revealed in us. Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. There's no billboard out there that says God is glorious. There's no plane with a flying banner behind it. No, how does God reveal his glory? Through us. For the creation, do you hear that? For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation waits. The creation is a significant part of our story and our journey. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of, one, of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, our sin didn't just cost us. Our sin cost everything around us. That's true today. You sin, all the people around you pay the price. All around you. See how important the creation is here in Paul's argument? The creation itself is hoping to be liberated. It's not that we die, go to heaven, and the creation ceases to exist. Not that at all. Creation is waiting for the same thing that we are. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, pause, there it is. We ourselves who have been given that deposit of the Spirit, we already possess it. What is that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? You know it. The fruit of the Spirit. We have already received it. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Resurrection. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, stunned the world. Stunned the world. Resurrection. That's why he's called the first one, the prototype. And we're next. 
we will not stay dead. We will receive new bodies. And where will we live? On the new earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And you think about all the things you enjoy about creation right now, and it's just a taste. Just a taste. You think about all the things we enjoy in community and in marriage and relationships that are healthy, it's just a taste. That's what Paul calls the first fruits of the Spirit. For in this hope we were saved. In this hope. So what is true Christian hope? We hope for what we've already possessed. Just not enough of it. That's what we hope for. I can't tell you with detail what it'll be like, but I can tell you we were made for the earth. That's why when you get to Revelation 21, 22, you see the, you see the heavens coming down. What did the uh, angel say to the the 11 standing at the tomb, why are you staring? Jesus will come back the same way he left. He's coming back. What does Emmanuel mean? What does it mean? God with us. Let's say it together. God with us. You see, as Jesus said, he eagerly, I pointed this out last week, he eagerly said to the disciples, I eagerly have wanted to share this Passover with you just before he was executed. God is eager to be with us. It's hard for us to think that way. And yet that's what's happening. In the New Jerusalem, he sees heaven coming down. Think of it this way. Heaven is God's dwelling place. A few people have gotten a glimpse of that. Paul, for example, going to the third heaven. The heaven is God's dwelling place. The earth earth is our dwelling place. And then what happens is, in eternity, Revelation 21 and 22, heaven comes down and joins with us. So now we have a new heaven and a new earth. What that means is God, for all of eternity, is now living in our midst, with us, Jesus. Jesus is with us for all of eternity. And all the things we enjoy about this, we'll enjoy it all and even more. All of it, even more. Can you imagine this wonderful world without sin, corruption, pollution, evil people? Can you imagine it? It sounds kind of good, doesn't it? That's what our resurrected bodies are all about. An earthly body. Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15. A resurrected body. We're going to come back and look at this more as we start the journey toward Lent after Christmas. But first we have to get through what all is going on here at the birth of Christ. He came to bring us true, genuine hope so that, as David said, in his presence, when we are together, we will experience the fullness of the joy. Then all that joy will just be cascading. It will fill us. It will be the most wonderful thing in the world. And that's everything in the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, what we're created for, because that's what we're created for, is to enjoy all that. We're not created for sin. We're not created for death. We're not created for suffering, for hardship. Those are not things we're created for. There's nothing in us that prepares us for that. How in the world can you lose somebody close to you and not, and not struggle? That's why the Holy Spirit and the community of faith is so important. 
the, lot, the role that we play in each other's lives because we help us to stand faithful through all those hard times. Not to make it not hard. That's not it. It's going to be hard, as those of you who have lost people know. It's been 34 years since my first wife died, and I still cry. That's the reality of it. All you have to do is get me talking about her, and I'll have tears. It's not to remove, to remove the pain that will come. It's to have friends who come alongside and walk with me to ease it. That's what we're created for. That's what true hope is. There will come a day when our bodies will be resurrected, fleshly bodies. When Paul says spiritual bodies, he's not talking about a disembodied spirit. He's talking about a new body that understands spiritual life better than we would ever understand it today. That's what he means. So this candle over here, Advent, hope, we have a true hope that the world hasn't figured out yet because we've already tasted of love, joy, peace, patience. Does that make sense? Father, thank you. Thank you for, well, you created us, so I, I know that you understand us. But thank you for understanding us, knowing us, loving us. Thank you for making us the way we are. Thank you for making us to enjoy these wonderful mountains and the place where we live. Everywhere I travel around the world, Lord, <clears throat> I, am, I am captured by the beauty of creation. Yes, I see the, the anguish of pollution and poor leadership. I see that. But underneath it all, there's a creation that's good that longs to be liberated just like we do. Thank you for giving us a true hope where we can experience that kind of joy that we know is possible and we just haven't gotten there yet. In your son's name we pray, amen.